third panel uh, of Constitution Day here at Cato. I'm Walter Olson with Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and uh, overlawyered.com. Uh, we have a panel on property high and low. We are going to sort out later on whether there's any actual connection between the three cases we will be talking about. But uh, to lead off, I, um, I would like to introduce my boss, this will be a good introduction, uh, Roger Pilon, who is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. He is the founding director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, he is the inaugural holder of Cato's B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and he also founded the Cato Supreme Court Review, of which we are so proud. Uh, before joining Cato, he held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice. Uh, he's uh, won many awards. Uh, he holds his BA from Columbia, uh, MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, and JD from George Washington University School of Law. Roger Pilon. Well, thank you, uh, Wally. Um, I'm going to be discussing the terms um, major property rights case, Murr v. Wisconsin. Uh, that's a regulatory takings case, um, so-called, arising not when the government uh, takes um, uh, prop whole property uh, for public use uh, and pays the owner just compensation under the uh, Constitution's takings clause, uh, nor when it regulates uh, to prevent harms such as nuisance and risk uh, and is not required to pay compensation, but when it takes legitimate uses uh, of property in order to provide the public with uh, some public good, leaving the devalued property with the owner, uh, but often failing to pay the owner for his losses. It's an area of the law that's rife with confusion and abuse. In fact, uh, just when you thought the court couldn't mess up things anymore, it did so here, uh, not only in the majority opinion of Justice Kennedy, but in the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, as so often is the case, uh, only Justice Thomas saw the issue, uh, writing briefly uh, that he joined the takings precedents, but adding that the court has never purported to ground those proceedings in the Constitution as it was originally understood, and therein lies the core of the problem with this decision. Uh, in fact, uh, here the court almost signaled its confusion by agreeing to hear the case in January of 2016, then waiting nearly 14 months before scheduling oral argument uh, on March 20th of this year, but it couldn't wait an additional month uh, for Judge Gorsuch to join the court, where it might have weighed in with, uh, with Thomas, uh, as he often does uh, since joining the court. So let me uh, lay out the facts of the case, uh, which are relatively simple, then show how it should have been decided on first principles of the kind that Justice Thomas alluded to. Second, I'll take a quick uh, run through a bit of the history of the court's ad hoc regulatory takings law that's brought us here. Third, uh, given those precedents, I'll look at how Justice Kennedy decided the case, then how Chief Justice Roberts correctly criticized him, but then still missed the main points. Finally, I'll consider briefly how to straighten this out. Uh, the Murrs uh, were four siblings who, at separate times in the 1990s, inherited two parcels 
from uh, along the St. River, uh, St. Croix River, that their parents had purchased at separate times in the 1960s. Pay attention to these dates because they're important. The parents had built a small home on the first lot. They bought the second lot later as an investment. Uh, the lots were deeded separately and taxed separately, and they remain so to this day. But in 1975, local zoning ordinance combined the lots as one. The MERS discovered that in 2004, when they sought to sell the investment lot valued at $410,000, only to be told that they couldn't do so unless they sold the other lot and the house along with it. So they sued under the first uh, Fifth Amendment's taking clause, which prohibits the government from taking private property for public use without just compensation. In effect, the ordinance had taken their right to sell that lot, one of the basic rights of property. The case is a little more complicated than that. Under the Constitution's takings clause, they should have been compensated for their loss. So why did they lose? Let's now take our stroll through just a bit of the court's 20th century regulatory takings law. Contrary to Justice Kennedy, he didn't even get his facts right. The first um, of the uh, 20th century uh, takings cases that the court took up was not Penn Central v. Mahon. It was a year earlier in Block v. Hirsch, 1921, when the court considered a pair of rent control cases from, uh, from New York and the District of Columbia. And there, uh, the plaintiffs were suing for the difference between what they could get on the market and what they were able to get under the rent controls. Um, they lost uh, the sainted Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes writing the opinion for the court. But a year later, in Penn Cole v. Mahon, the judge went the, the other way um, with um, a decision upholding uh, uh, the complaint of the uh, coal companies. And here, um, he set forth the, uh, he, the case is very complex, and I'm not going to go into it because the only thing that really is important that came from this case that Holmes laid out was the rule that if a regulation goes too far, it constitutes a taking. Well, now, with that bright line, too far, we have had what Justice Scalia 70 years later called 70-odd years of ad hoc regulatory takings jurisprudence, even as he was adding another year to the string. Um, for our purposes, however, the two most important cases begin with Penn Central v. City of New York in 1978 decision that introduced the three-part balancing test to determine whether a taking has occurred. Under it, the court must, one, uh, uh, must weigh, one, a regulation's economic impact on the property, two, its interference with investment-backed expectations, and three, the character of the government action. Now, if you understand what those uh, factors mean, much less how to apply them, you're doing better than the court has done in the interim since. But the one thing that you do need to know is if you're a property owner up against Penn Central, you will probably lose. Uh, there's one more point to consider from Penn Central, however, and it's crucial here. Those three factors must be applied to, quote, the parcel as a whole. So hold on to that thought. Um, a final case to be considered is the court's 1992 decision, Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Council, where a 5-4 court 
held that an ordinance prohibiting the plaintiff from virtually all rightful uses of his property constituted a taking because it wiped out all the property's value. Here, a little more detail is in order because the case captures so succinctly what's wrong with these courts' regulatory takings jurisprudence. In 1986, David Lucas, a developer um, in, in South Carolina, bought two parcels of land on the Outer Banks uh, near uh, Charleston, South Carolina, with the idea of building a home for himself and one and a home to sell on the other. Uh, there was nothing extraordinary in what he was proposing. There were homes on either side of his two lots. But in the year later, the South Carolina legislature passed its Beachfront Management Act for the protection of certain flora and fauna to promote uh, tourism and the like, the effect of which was to deny him all economic use of his property. Oh, he could pitch a tent on it, he could have a picnic on it, but at a million dollars, it was pretty expensive tenting and picnicking property. So he did what every red-blooded American would do, he sued. And he won at trial, but at the Supreme Court of South Carolina, he lost, and so he appealed to the Supreme Court. Fortunately, cert was granted, and the court reversed five to four. Notice there were four, the liberals, who would have left that in place out a million dollars because of that statute. But Scalia set forth in that opinion the so-called wipeout rule. It's because it, he lost all value in the property that he was entitled to compensation. Well, the problem there, as you can see, is that most regulations don't wipe out the entire value in the property. Indeed, Justice Stevens, in dissent, objected that a uh, person who suffers 95% of a loss uh, will get nothing. And Scalia, writing for the court, said, well, taking's law is full of these all-or-nothing situations. Well, thank you, Nino. Um, the, um, with Penn Central's parcel as a whole rule and Lucas's wipeout rule now before us, we're ready to go back to Murray v. Wisconsin. If the two lots are treated separately, as the separate deeds and separate taxes have long implied, then the entire value of the, of the investment lot has been wiped out by that 1975 ordinance prohibiting its sale, and the Murrs under Lucas are entitled to compensation. But with the two lots combined as one under Penn Central's the parcel as a whole rule, value remains in the combined lots. So by putting the two parcels together as the 1975 ordinance did, uh, the state can escape paying the MERS compensation unless the Penn Central three-part balancing test saves them. And Justice Kennedy, not surprisingly, found that it did not. One has to read his opinion to appreciate how perfect the Penn Central test is for the approach he so often takes in so many areas of the law. We find him waxing at length, for example, on how courts must look to a property's physical characteristics, including the physical relationship of any distinguishable tracks, topography, and the surrounding human and ecological environment. Um, on how courts should assess the property's value under the challenge regulation, with special attention to the effect of burdened land on the value of other holdings. Concerning the MERS reasonable expectations, Kennedy writes that the property's terrain and shape make it reasonable to expect their range of potential uses might be limited, and petitioners could have anticipated regulation of the property due to its location along the river, none of which, of course, is central to the principles of the matter. These are simply policy considerations. He continues, though, a central dynamic of the court's regulatory takings jurisprudence is its flexibility, pointing to the government's well-established power to adjust rights for the public good. He comes down at every turn on the government's side, 
thus reflecting the lesser protection property rights get under the rational basis test the court has applied ever since the New Deal. And on the cru crucial question of whether the two lots should be treated as one, Kennedy notes that the Murrs argue that the lot lines should define the relevant parcel. How quaint. He answers by writing that the Murrs ignore the fact that lot lines are themselves creatures of state law, which can be overridden by the state in the reasonable exercise of its power. Notice the circularity there. And what was the state's rationale for combining the lots? It was to, to preserve open space, enacted as part of the coordinated federal, state, and local effort to preserve river and surrounding land. Just how allowing the MERS to sell their lot would preserve the river and surrounding land is never explained. But if the MERS expected the dissent uh, would at least see the problem, they were disappointed. In fact, at the onset, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, in the majority's conclusion that the regulation does not affect a taking that requires just compensation does not trouble him. What does trouble him is the majority's argument. Today's decision, he writes, knocks the definition of private property loose from its foundation on stable state law rules and throws it into the maelstrom of multiple factors that come into play at the second step stage of takings analysis. In other words, Kennedy uses Penn Central's three-part balancing test rather than state law to determine what the relevant parcel is, and then uses it again to determine if a taking has occurred. Roberts was right about that, but he too missed the larger point because it's precisely the absence of a stable state law that is at the heart of this case. It was later state law that combined the two parcels, which means that by doing so, given current federal regulatory takings law, the state is able to get out from under the compensation requirement. Roberts' failure to credit that change in state law and to critically examine that federal law those precedents leaves the Murrs in no better shape than they were in when Kennedy was finished. The Murr parents purchased the two parcels at separate times. They bought the second parcel as an investment property. Those were the properties they conveyed at separate times to their children. But the intervening state law combined with federal takings doctrine took their right to sell that investment lot. In short, the state law was not stable. The state changed the rules of the game after it began. So let's step back from the particular case and take a broader look. James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, wrote a famous essay in the National Gazette in 1792 entitled Property. And in it, he listed some of the many properties a man can be said to possess, concluding with the oft-quoted line, in a word, as a man may be said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. In other words, all of our rights are properties. Lawyers often liken property to a bundle of sticks because you can divide property in countless ways, use it variously, rent it for a time, bequeath it for a period, and so on. In every area of the law except regulatory takings, we understand this. Now go back to the Lucas decision. The problem with Justice Scalia's wipeout rule is that it's got it upside down. Under the takings clause, an owner is entitled to compensation when any one of those sticks 
Hicks is taken, any one of his legitimate uses, not only after the entire bundle is taken, leaving him with an empty title. Indeed, if a thief came along, put a gun to your head and said, your money or your life, and you bargained him down to keeping that amount to give you cab fare to get home, we would all say, I trust that he had stolen your money, even though he hadn't taken all of it. But if that thief wears a badge, say, U.S. government, then he can get away with it because he's not a thief in that case. Well, from an economics perspective, when reg regulations take various of an owner's uses in order to provide the public with various public goods like lovely views, wildlife habitat, and the, and the like, and the government doesn't pay for what it's taken, that good becomes free to the public. And as Econ 101 tells us, when something is free, the demand is infinite. That's why we have so many of these regulations today. They cost the public nothing. The, 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 the price is all paid by individual property owners. Property owners are not, just to be clear, against regulations per se, such regulations. You, have, you can have all the public goods you're authorized to have, just pay for them. And so the property rights movement that's been growing since the progressive era comes down to a simple proposition put to the government. If you're authorized to do so, go ahead and provide the public with various goods. But if you have to take my property to do so, stop stealing it, pay for it. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. In your volume of the new Cato Supreme Court Review, you will find that the article on Merver v. Wisconsin is written by uh, Notre Dame law professor uh, Nicole Stell Garnett. And that brings me to our next guest, um, who uh, explained to me when he arrived this afternoon that we had gotten the wrong Garnett. Um, he is the other Notre Dame law professor by that name, uh, Richard Garnett, the Paul Sherrill Fort Howard Corporation Professor of Law, uh, with a concurrent appointment in the Department of Political Science. And one of the nation's best-known writers, I think, on the relation of law and religion. He has uh, published dozens of law review articles and book chapters. Um, I, as a blogger, got to know him first uh, because of his uh, persuasive and um, abundant blogging at Prof's blog and Mirror of Justice. Um, he is also the founding director of Notre Dame Law School's program on church, state, and society, an interdisciplinary project. Uh, he clerked for the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist as well as late uh, Eighth Circuit uh, Chief Judge uh, William, or rather Richard Arnold, and he is closely involved in efforts to improve uh, Catholic education and education in general. Uh, Richard Carnett. Yeah, again, um, let me just apologize uh, that you got stuck with this garnet rather than the other one. It takes nothing away from my friend Roger's excellent presentation to, uh, to point out that the podium would have been graced by Nicole's presence. Um, so what would we do without the Supreme Court? Who would tell us things like, what is the nature of the game of golf? Or what are the vast creative possibilities for this new thing called the net? Or indeed, uh, what do we do? who would tell us about the, um, the meaning of the sweet mystery of life? Who would tell us, as the Chief Justice did in his opinion for the court this summer in Trinity Lutheran, that, quote, youngsters often fall on the playground or tumble from the equipment, and when they do, the gravel can be unforgiving? <laughs> Who says Republican nominees don't have empathy? 
So in order to reduce the risk uh, to youngsters' knees and elbows, the Trinity Lutheran Church uh, has a daycare center called the Child Learning Center, and they applied in 2012 for a grant from Missouri's uh, Scrap Tire Program, which was run by the Department of Natural Resources. The purpose of the program is to reduce the, the amount of used tires in landfills, and so to incentivize people to use these tires, to recycle them, they reimburse qualified nonprofits that use this scrap rubber to repurpose uh, their playgrounds with that soft, rubbery stuff that you see on playgrounds these days, instead of pea gravel, which, as the Chief Justice told us, is bad for knees. Uh, Trinity Lutheran's application was solid. Uh, it was ranked fifth out of the 44 that came in. Uh, it was denied, and this is not uh, contested. It was denied for one reason only, and that's because Trinity Lutheran Church is a church. In the words of Chief Justice Roberts, Missouri's rule is, quote, no churches need apply. Now, according to the department, this strict exclusionary policy was required by Article I, Section 7 of Missouri's Constitution. That provision prohibits any money from going, quote, directly or indirectly in aid of any church, sect, or denomination of religion. And that particular provision dates back to 1875, and I'll have more to say about that later. So, like, like another red-blooded American, Trinity Lutheran sued. Uh, and claimed a violation of the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, they lost in the District Court. They lost in the Eighth Circuit, uh, with Judge Loken pointing out that the Supreme Court, back in 2004, in a case called Locke v. Davey, had rejected what the Eighth Circuit thought was an analogous claim and had held that it didn't violate the Constitution for Washington State to deny a uh, scholarship to an otherwise eligible student uh, on the ground that that student was choosing to major in uh, devotional theology. The Eighth Circuit was very clear that uh, Missouri could have funded, could have reimbursed Trinity Lutheran for this uh, improvement project. The claim was just that it didn't have to under the Free Exercise Clause. Well, the court granted cert on January 15th, 2016. And I have to admit, I was really excited at that time. I had, uh, when I was a, an associate here in Washington back in 1998, I had tried to get the court to take a case presenting this issue. Uh, Mike Paulson and I did a cert petition together, and for some bizarre reason, uh, our compelling arguments escaped the court's notice. Um, but it's only been 18 years, so now they took it. Um, one month after cert was granted, Justice Scalia died. Uh, and like some other observers, I expected that this would end up being one of the 4-4 cases that affirms what I regarded as the wrong-headed Eighth Circuit opinion. But as it happened, oral arguments were not held until April 19th, which was about two weeks after the confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch. So not long after, by a seven to two vote, the court agreed that Missouri, agreed with me, that Missouri's categorical exclusion violated the free exercise clause. As, as Chief Justice Roberts put it, quote, the exclusion of Trinity Lutheran solely because it is a church is, quote, odious to our constitution and cannot stand. He said, the Establishment Clause doesn't require this exclusion, and Missouri's, quote, policy preference for ultra-strict separation doesn't justify the exclusion. Now, there were three short concurring opinions and one long, long dissent uh, by Justice Sotomayor, a dissent that had Justice Scalia written it. It would have been characterized as bitter or angry. Uh, it was read from the bench, and it didn't use the customary word respectfully, and uh, in terms of page length, it was twice as long as the other opinions combined. 
Now, the key move in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was to distinguish the court's earlier precedent in Locke v. Davey. So just again, Locke v. Davey had said, there's, quote, play in the joints between what the Establishment Clause permits and the Free Exercise Clause requires. And the court had held that that play in the joints was broad enough to allow Washington, if it wanted to, to pursue its deeply rooted historical interest in not paying for the training of ministers. So in this case, that is in Trinity Lutheran, um, as you might expect, the state relied quite heavily on Locke v. Davey. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts distinguished it, and this, again, I think is the key move in the opinion. He said, in this case, Trinity Lutheran is being discriminated against, is being excluded solely on the basis of its religious, the word they use is status, solely on the basis of what it is. Whereas, the Chief Justice said, in Locke v. Davey, it wasn't that Josh Davey was uh, discriminated against simply because he was religious. He could have accepted the scholarship and majored in economics or indeed uh, philosophy, even theology, just not devotional theology. The point is, it, Josh Davey was discriminated against on the basis of what he was going to do with the money and not on the basis of who he was. In contrast, Trinity is being categorically uh, discriminated against because of what it is, because of its religious status. It's put to a choice. You can give up your identity as a church uh, and, and get a benefit to which you're otherwise entitled, or you can forfeit the benefit. So that's the key move that led to Trinity Lutheran uh, winning. The mysterious moment that complicates that key move is the much-remarked uh, footnote three. Let me read this in its entirety. This case involves expressed discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. Well, it's not entirely clear what that means. Uh, and because only four justices joined it, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch explicitly rejected it, it's interesting to speculate about what the uh, jurisprudential or precedential impact of the note is. But we'll find out pretty soon, because the day after this case came down, the court sent back to state cases uh, to Colorado and New Mexico for reconsideration in light of Trinity Lutheran. And it's pretty clear that these uh, state court judges are going to have to wrestle with the mysterious footnote three. Now, Justice Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, he honed in directly on the note and explained why he wasn't joining it. Two main points. First, he said, we shouldn't put too much weight on a distinction between religious status and religious use. After all, he says, Lutherans do Lutheran things. It's free exercise either way. His second point was to underscore the fact that just because Trinity Lutheran happens to involve playground resurfacing, there's no reason to think that the principles that are announced and applied in that case are limited to playground resurfacing. There isn't a body of law, playground resurfacing law. At least I've never, I haven't been able to teach that seminar, although I've put in for it. Um, Justice Gorsuch says, our cases are governed by general principles, not ad hoc improvisations. And so the unremarkable fact that this case happened to involve a certain set of facts, Justice Gorsuch says, shouldn't limit the applicability of the principle. Okay, so in the remaining time I have, I want to highlight four points or questions or implications uh, that I see kind of beneath the surface or perhaps on the side, questions to, to be resolved still. The first, and this is the elephant in the room, uh, is the implications of this case for school choice programs. So... Fifteen years ago, as many of you remember, 
the constitutionality of school vouchers was affirmed in the Zellman case uh, in an opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist. And it's interesting that in Trinity, no justice challenged uh, the Zellman holding. We can speculate about what Justices um, uh, Sotomayor and, and Ginsburg think about it, but no justice denied that Zellman was, uh, continued to be uh, the rule, the law. And indeed, seven of the justices agreed that it was perfectly fine under the Establishment Clause for Missouri to fund this project if it wanted to. And I highlight that just because it is quite a striking change from those of you who had to endure uh, studying the court's um, school aid cases that came down in the 70s and 80s where you know, so much depended on whether you were talking about a map or a book or an atlas. Uh, now it seems to be pretty well settled, dare we say a super precedent, uh, that school choice is constitutional. The question now, of course, is whether uh, states are required to let otherwise eligible religious schools participate. If that was the elephant in the room, uh, the dog that didn't bark was the constitutionality of Missouri's so-called Blaine Amendment and of other ones like it. Uh, many scholars have shown, and the court is certainly aware of the fact, thanks to the yeoman work of the Beckett Fund and others, the court knows that these Blaine Amendments were the product of an ambient anti-Catholicism uh, that was quite, quite strong in the late um, 19th century and well into the 20th. Uh, Despite some efforts to minimize this influence, my view is that these provisions are inextricably linked with the nativist view that parochial schools were dangerous to the task of forming American citizens. Now, again, I think most people concede the reality of this history. The question is whether it matters. The court was presented with the argument that Missouri's constitutional provision was unconstitutional, not just the state's policy implementing it, but the provision itself was unconstitutional because of this animus that motivated its enactment. The court ignored this history and ignored this issue completely. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion has nothing to do with the history of uh, the Missouri Blaine Amendment or indeed of any others. Um, as I said in my piece in the uh, journal, maybe this is for the best. Um, more and more, although I used to make the argument that the Blaines were unconstitutional, and certainly I'm not a big fan of them on policy grounds, Perhaps it's better, jurisprudentially, if we don't have doctrines that invite courts to look for bad motives, bad purposes, animus. Those kinds of inquiries can lead to what my friend Stephen Smith calls, quote, a discourse of disrespect. And more and more, I'm inclined to think that doctrine that focuses on legislative uh, outputs is better than doctrine that speculates about legislative inputs. And doctrine that focuses on the discriminatory operation of these Blaine Amendments, it seems to me, is more than sufficient uh, to get us to the conclusion that states shouldn't be able to discriminate against religious schools and voucher programs. Third, some of, um, some of the amici in this case argued that the Constitution requires government to refuse to fund religious entities if they, quote, discriminate. And the claim, of course, is that many traditional religious schools, including parochial schools, do discriminate, whether on the basis of religion or some other ground. Now, that issue didn't come up in this case at all. As it happens, uh, Trinity Lutheran uh, admits students of, of all faiths and none. But obviously, many schools that participate in voucher programs do have preferences for co-religionists. It, it would be quite a striking thing in my mind, it would be quite an expansion and an undesirable one of the state action doctrine to say that uh, 
the discrimination, if that's the right word, practiced by a parochial school in its admissions becomes the responsibility of the government simply because the school is receiving uh, benefits pursuant to a neutral and generally applicable funding program. Again, the court didn't address that issue, but we should expect to hear this argument pressed often in the public square uh, in the years to come. And then finally, uh, and forgive me if this is a bit abstract, but I'm, I'm an academic and I feel like I've been way too practical so far. Um, I think the doubts that Justice Gorsuch raised about this use status distinction are important. Uh, he's right. Lutheran people, they don't just exist as Lutheran people. They also do Lutheran things. And it is, it seems to me, free exercise either way. Uh, many people do put their faith at the heart of who they are. Dare we say some people let the dogma live loudly within them. Uh, but, but it seems redundant, it seems, sorry, reductionist to put too much weight on this status slash identity versus religious use uh, distinction. After all, religious exercise, which is what the Constitution speaks about, necessarily involves not just being a particular faith, but living it out. And so it seems to me that a free exercise regime that protects only belief or only identity doesn't protect very much. Thank you, and stay tuned. Thank you, Professor Garnett. Uh, we welcome to Cato for the first time uh, attorney Thomas Hefferin, who is a partner at Goodwin Proctor LLP and co-chair of that firm's financial industry practice. Uh, he focuses his practice on civil litigation, bam, pow, uh, as well as dealing with regulators, which probably involves litigation occasionally, uh, for both banks and other uh, financial service uh, industries. My favorite part of his biography is that uh, you know, he has led a group that has defended more than 200 putative class actions, and I hope beat a lot of them. Um, he um, also acts as counsel to trade associations. Uh, and in this case, and this is uh, something that is not in the biography, but which you should definitely know, he was involved in this case uh, of uh, Miami versus Wells Fargo that you will be hearing about. Uh, he argued it at the district court level in Florida, federal court. Uh, he argued it at the 11th Circuit. Uh, Neil Katyal, who you'll be hearing from at, uh, at a later panel, uh, went on to argue it before the Supreme Court. Uh, but Thomas Hefferin, um, has himself argued Supreme Court cases, including in the, two, the court's 2011 term, uh, the Quicken Loans case in which he got a unanimous decision for his client. Uh, please join me in welcoming Thomas Hefferin. Uh, thank you, Wally. Um, I am uh, uh, grateful for being invited. I was thinking, as, as uh, Wally indicated, how does this case relate to the other cases? And they all do talk about property rights. Um, but uh, in a larger sense, uh, they, this case is different, because this case actually called the court to grapple with issues that it is increasingly dealing with over the course of its last five or six years, which is um, consumer financial services, consumer credit cases. And it's a stealth uh, area. It's something that the court really had not dealt with. In fact, uh, uh, when um, almost 20 years between cases um, uh, in the uh, in the 70s and 80s, deciding no cases in this area. And what's interesting about it is the court has taken on this area of law in part because it is 
um, grappling with the fact that we have a number of statutes, one of which we'll talk about in a moment, where um, they were passed in the 70s and 80s, 1960s as well, broadly written, the Burger Court broadly construed them, and now the Roberts Court is dealing with how to narrow down and, and, and uh, both balance off the precedential effect of these older decisions and its desire to move in somewhat of a different direction. And Miami is a great example of that issue and that trend. It obviously does not arise only in this area, but it is arising frequently in this particular area. Um, I'll also, of course, um, mention a disclaimer. Not only was I involved in the case below, but the disposition of Miami is a remand, and I continue to be involved in the case. So, of course, anything I say about the case um, should not be attributed to uh, my client, which is Bank of America. Um, let's talk a little bit about the background of the case. Um, it's a, uh, a case probably many um, uh, may not have noticed um, or read about when it came out. Uh, the case concerns the Fair Housing Act of 1968, um, which is really quite broad. In fact, was passed uh, shortly after the riots in the 60s and, and on the heels of the Martin Luther King assassination. And, in light of that, it's not a surprise to those who are unfamiliar that the statute is really sweeping in scope in defining um, uh, and, uh, and not really limiting, but defining the uh, prohibitions against housing discrimination. In particular, particular to my practice and to the Miami case, uh, ultimately includes discrimination in making loans. Um, over the years, the statute, which is broadly written, has been broadly construed, and in particular, broadly construed to allow a whole raft of indirect, um, say, victims or targets of discrimination to bring a lawsuit. Of course, those who were denied housing or denied a loan based upon uh, membership in a protected class, they can bring a claim. But the Supreme Court and the lower courts have uh, stated that quite a number of other types of people can bring claims. So for example, neighbors, either in an apartment building or in a neighborhood, can bring a claim because if you discriminated against uh, African Americans in my neighborhood, you're depriving me of an opportunity to live in an integrated community. And so the Supreme Court has said that neighbors can bring a claim. Also, um, private housing uh, advocacy organizations can bring a claim because they were spending money to try to defeat segregation and try to promote integration. Interestingly enough, they can bring a claim even though their very purpose is to do that, to spend money on those, on those issues. But still, they can bring a claim under the Fair Housing Act. Um, people who have gone into test, uh, that is, pretended to apply for loans or pretended to apply for apartments, they can bring claims. And uh, grant recipients, developers, real estate agents, basically, um, if you read a lot of cases in this area, you'll really, uh, it's really breathtaking to see the scope of people who have been allowed to bring claims, even though they have not been direct, let's call victims of discrimination. Um, so along came the city of Miami. And the city of Miami sued four banks in 2013 under the Fair Housing Act in the wake of the recession. And their, their um, theory was that uh, the city had suffered a loss of property taxes and had spent a lot of money on code enforcement, police, and fire because the banks had made predatory loans in minority communities. Those loans had gone bad. People had been foreclosed on. The properties went vacant. Property values went down. City revenues went down. That's the theory. It's quite an indirect claim. The city didn't claim that it had suffered an injury because its neighborhoods had become more segregated or um, had become majority-minority neighborhoods. Miami, of course, couldn't do that because Miami is overwhelmingly majority-minority because of on the ethnicity um, measure because of the um, large Hispanic population. 
Um, so Miami's claim was entirely economic. They basically wanted to sue the banks to recover money for their budgets. Um, Miami wasn't the only one to bring a claim like this, and there are claims like this out there still. Um, City of Chicago or Cook County, um, Fulton County, which embraces Atlanta, Los Angeles, Oakland, Philadelphia, and some others. So um, this case and these cases are very controversial. There's only something like 19,000 cities and towns. So if uh, one allows a case like this, you can imagine the floodgates that could open up because the Supreme Court and other courts had really allowed a very broad cause of action under the Fair Housing Act. Um, the Supreme Court granted cert, um, granted it shortly before Justice uh, Scalia passed on, and um, there were two issues. The first issue was, can the city sue being such an indirect victim? And the second related to that, which is, can the city sue when the, its loss is so remote. For uh, all of us from first year law school, of course, this sounds a lot more remote than um, the uh, Paul's graph case, which, which of course was the classic causation case. Um, the Supreme Court had in the last five or six years, as I indicated, been cutting back quite liberally on the ability of people to bring lawsuits. And in particular, in the Lexmark case, it said that apart from statutory elements, you have to be within the zone of interests. That is, basically, you have to be somebody that Congress had in mind when they, brought the, when they passed the law. And also, you have to show that there's a proximate cause, that the injury that you suffered was proximately caused by a defendant. Uh, so we thought things were pr looking pretty good um, because the Supreme Court had been cutting back. And of course, the Supreme Court grants to reverse. I think last year, it was 3 quarters of the time they granted. Uh, they reversed, and on this, especially on the zone of interest issue, the court had been very critical in a 2011 opinion written by Justice Scalia, particularly of the decisions, the fair housing decisions on which the city of Miami case turned. Um, and so, the in particular, there was a case called Gladstone decided in the Burger Court in 1979, where the court had allowed a somewhat similar claim by a. Uh, a village in Illinois, but that decision, the Gladstone decision, had been specifically called out and criticized as being um, perhaps too broad. Maybe it was dicta, and we'll get to that, but um, called out and criticized in the Thompson case, which was a Title VII case that had applied a pretty strict zone of interest analysis. Um, and so after a lively argument um, on Election Day as it, as it happened, um, the Supreme Court handed down its decision uh, later in the term and uh, really a split decision on the two issues. I want to focus on the, the zone of interest issue, which I think is the more interesting one and gets to this issue of grappling with precedent. Um, Justice Breyer issued an opinion. Um, it was a five to three, uh, Justice Gorsuch not yet on the court. And on the issue of the zone of interest, um, Justice Breyer actually made pretty quick work of the arguments, notwithstanding the criticism only a few years ago of the Gladstone case and the broad reading of the Fair Housing Act. Um, uh, Justice Breyer wrote, the principles of stare decisis compel our adherence to those precedents in this context. Um, interestingly enough, the court, um, Justice Breyer's opinion, did not grapple at all with the issues that came up during the animated oral argument about, well, if you allow the city to sue for loss of property taxes, what about the neighbor who actually had his property devalued? Can he sue? What about the local merchant who didn't have as much business activity to make as many sales? Can you allow him to sue? This kind of line drawing problem that, of course, comes up often when you're broadly construing a statute 
were, was really the fodder of argument, and uh, Justice Breyer basically said, well, I don't know where the line is, but I know I can rely on this old case. And sure enough, that garnered five votes from the court. One um, of the uh, uh, interesting features is I actually went back and looked at the oral argument in the Gladstone case, which was this case that Justice Breyer relied on, and the same questions were raised at that time in 1979. Where do you draw the line? If, the sta if you want to go beyond those who were direct victims of discrimination, where do you stop? And uh, Gladstone didn't deal with it either, and neither did, neither did Justice Breyer. Um, not surprisingly, the dissent um, was uh, written by Justice Thomas was really quite uh, um, direct in finding that the uh, city should not be allowed to sue and really harped on the idea that Congress could not have thought that cities could sue to recover for budgetary losses. And I was reminded at that time, when reading that part of the opinion, is, um, as uh, Wally mentioned, I had argued the case in the district court. And when the plaintiff stood up on the motion to dismiss in the district court, the very first thing the judge said was, I took a look at your case. And are we now going to have to have another TARP program for the banks? And, um, and then he said, of course, um, as many district courts uh, would say, then he said, and am I going to have to be the judge in the Southern District of Florida in charge of all of these cases? Um, and that was exactly the problem. That's, of course, the problem that, that these kinds of situations arise, which is where do you draw the line when you're going to allow um, a broad right of action? Um, but as I indicated, Justice Breyer um, uh, was not willing to go there, and so score a point for the dead hand of the Burger Court. Um, and that, was, and that was really the zone of interest decision. Um, the postscript here, it's not a postscript for the parties, but the postscript, I think, for, for this talk is the second issue, the proximate causation issue, was actually decided in favor of the banks. And the court, um, actually in an unanimous portion of the opinion, held that uh, there was the, the causation test was proximate causation. You had to show not only that there was um, a direct line, but that it was close enough. Um, of course, proximate causation is a matter of policy um, and a matter of, of uh, um, line drawing. And this, the uh, majority opinion said, well, we'll send it down to the lower courts to decide where to draw that line, whether or not, you, whether or not there's a close enough connection between the discrimination on the one hand and the loss to the city on the other. Uh, the dissent, again, said, we don't think there's really going to be much problem with that, and had it expressed its own views about the ability to prove some kind of causal link. Um, and, uh, and that's where that, this case sits, and that's actually where a number of cases sit. And there's about um, 15 or so cases out there, um, which are at this point now trying to figure out how to apply um, the Miami decision. Um, but for the purposes of today, I just thought I'd focus on, on uh, uh, key takeaways, which really relate to the zone of interest issue. Um, the first is, as I indicated, Justice Breyer's opinion um, in the face of uh, some difficult questions, in the face of controversy, which um, came out not only in the briefs, the amicus briefs, including the, the, the Cato's brief, and oral argument, um, really hide, hid behind um, the principle of stare decisis. And it's always interesting when you look at a Supreme Court opinion, uh, of course, at how the court is looking and dealing at any given time with stare decisis because uh, the issue is constantly coming up. And particularly in this instance where you have the court, which is moving more in a, in a particular direction than it was certainly 30 years ago and even more recently, how is the court going to deal with the fact that it's going to be faced with the opportunity to directly overrule a precedent? In this case, um, 
for those who believed that Gladstone controlled, this was it, uh, after a mention in the Thompson case that Gladstone was critical, uh, where it was criticized, uh, this was an opportunity for the Supreme Court to say, you know what, we're now going to overrule that decision, and Justice Breyer did exactly the opposite in his opinion. So anytime there's a question of stare decisis, it's an interesting one, and this was one example from the last term. Um, and, uh, and upheld, as I indicated, an older decision, which really was quite broad. Um, and then the second um, key takeaway, which is related to that, of course, is, is really, um, although this was a bit of a sidestep, maybe even a step backward, um, there, this case does illustrate this continuing movement in the part of the Roberts Court towards cutting back on the scope um, of civil statutes, really construing them quite strictly, adding uh, requirements like the zone of interest test, which has always sort of been kicking around, but really has been promoted and is now a feature of any civil case, um, pushing also on causation. The causation case law also has gotten a lot better, um, a lot more restricted um, requirements on uh, making some connection between the plaintiff's injury and the defendant's actions. So that's a, that's a trend which has certainly been going on four, five, six years and continues. And you even see it in this case, even though the Gladstone uh, opinion was upheld and the zone of interest uh, test was met, no one questioned whether the zone of interest was to be applied. And on the causation side in the postscript, it was a very favorable decision um, and continuing to cut back. Um, uh, on these kinds of causes of action. So certainly as we go and we look forward, um, whether it be in uh, the, the narrow area of consumer credit or any other kind of civil litigation, I think it's worth for those who watch the court closely to continue to watch this trend, um, particularly with the new composition of the court, as civil actions are more and more narrowly construed, more and more faithfully disconstrued to what Congress originally intended. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Um, before we turn to question and answer from the audience, I'd like to invite the panelists, if any of them were spurred to respond to what others said or uh, draw any connections, no? Um, okay, seeing none. Um, just in case any of you weren't here at the previous panel, uh, the rules again on questions, uh, please wait to be called on. Uh, then wait for the microphone to get to you so that everyone in the room and our online audience uh, can hear your question. Announce your name and affiliation. Uh, so, questions from the audience? Uh, yes, sir, back there. Uh, Jim Duhom, unaffiliated. Uh, the Blaine Amendments, as I recall, and I think you mentioned uh, um, were adopted in 1875 and, and uh, thereabouts. Uh, at that time, in 1866, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, uh, uh, Blaine was in Congress. Most of the people who were involved in the enacting the Blaine Amendments were around at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. So, and if, if in fact, as the Supreme Court later held, the 14th Amendment incorporated the uh, Establishment Clause, there would have been no need for the, the Blaine Amendments. So isn't the mere existence of the Blaine Amendments some fairly good evidence that the 14th Amendment does not incorporate the Establishment Clause, and particularly because Establishment uh, involves primarily the expenditure of public money, not the deprivation of life, liberty, or property to any person. 
long-winded, but it is a question. No, not, not long-winded at all. Uh, so two quick things. First, just to be clear, these, the term Blaine Amendments has, these, has two meanings, right? There's the actual proposal that was made to amend the U.S. Constitution by, you know, the continental liar from the state of Maine. Um, and then there's this um, big grab bag of state provisions that were enacted over the course of several decades. It wasn't, wasn't uh, at a go. Um, some states actually were required to incorporate these provisions into their constitution as a condition of, uh, of statehood. So th these, uh, these provisions are not um, uh, homogenous. They have different wordings. Uh, some are broader than others. Some have been interpreted by state supreme courts differently. So I, would, I wouldn't want to suggest that they're uniform. I, I do believe, though, um, that the weight of the evidence suggests that all of them shared, at least to some degree, this... Um, this motive, this, this concern about um, uh, immigrant Catholicism and particularly being bad for the formation of citizens. Now, on your point about, you know, what inferences can we draw about incorporation from the fact that somebody thought it was worth trying to amend the Constitution um, to add explicit language about disestablishment, I think that's pretty good evidence. Um, the, uh, my friend Kurt Lash at the University of Richmond, um, who's a very prolific uh, scholar, has written a whole lot about what he sees as the process of uh, incorporating kind of a, a no-establishment principle uh, before the 14th Amendment. So I think he would say that notwithstanding the Blaine Amendment, there's at least some evidence that at least for some of those who are ratifying the Reconstruction Amendments, they did think that it was um, what one wants to call it a privilege or immunity or a fundamental right uh, to be free from a coercive state establishment. So. Um, more questions? Um, yeah, in the back there. Uh, thank you. I'm Herman Bauma with the uh, National Association for Object Objectivity and Science. I have a question for Mr. Hefferon. Um, in that case, I didn't quite understand what, uh, how the banks were guilty of uh, discrimination. I mean, if they're making loans to people who really can't afford them, is that, uh, it's just not clear to me, I'm missing the piece of, of how uh, they're guilty of discrimination. Sure. Um, so the theory, uh, there are several theories, but the primary one is that um, uh, the banks engaged in reverse redlining. Uh, basically, the banks decided they were going to take loans with disadvantageous terms and make them at, an inc at a uh, higher rate in minority communities. Um, and uh, therefore make more money and then make loans with, in, in a disparate way, make loans with uh, more advantageous terms in majority communities. Um, there was the, the idea really being that, um, uh, you know, essentially affirmative marketing, uh, you know, going out and trying to get folks in inner city Miami to sign up for high interest loans, for loans with uh, adjustable rate mortgages and those kinds of things. Um, and so that was their theory. They also had a theory that uh, essentially um, banks permitted uh, loan officers um, to uh, vary their compensation, uh, pay, you know, get paid more money, they increase their bonus, um, depending on the type of loan they sold or the, um, uh, the points charged, and that they, the banks um, basically permitted those loan officers to um, uh, really you know, uh, exercise unlimited discretion in minority areas, and as a consequence, they got paid more. 
But so the theory really is essentially uh, the loans, uh, sort of the average loan, the typical loan in a minority community was, you know, worse terms than in a majority community. Well, Tom, does that mean that the banks could not do any actuarial assessment of the probability of return? The, I mean, first of all, the, um, there was, in fact, um, and we talked about Wally this, there was, in fact, a movement as it began in 2003 or four. It was a movement inspired in part <coughs> by the um, efforts of the Clinton administration, also Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to actually increase lending in minority communities because the communities were underserved. And of course, when you looked at um, those communities, one of the reasons they were underserved was because um, the, you know, the economically those um, sort of, I wouldn't say typical borrower, but many more borrowers in those areas had credit scores that were more difficult or lower or, or credit profiles that were more difficult. And so that led to a broadening of the types of loans that were available and some adjustable rate mortgages and things like that, which w otherwise didn't exist in the market, started to pop up in order to serve those communities. And they, of course, as you indicate, Roger, those were priced in order to take into the account the higher risk. So in some sense, what happened as sort of the backdrop of all this was the banks and the non-banks were encouraged to make more loans in those communities in 2002, three, and four. And then, of course, when the market crashed in 2008 and nine, um, those communities, not surprising given just what happens in market crashes, those communities struggled. Um, and so the idea was um, the lawsuits were justified because bad loans had been made in those communities. And of course, one of the responses that ultimately, um, you know, many on the public policy side uh, will make is, well, that was encouraged at the time. And that was, you know, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, obviously a very unintended consequence, but in some sense, in retrospect, not a terribly surprising one. Uh, and if I could follow up a little bit, we had been talking earlier about the uh, question of the directness of damages. You know, was, was Miami bound to be hit with certain types of uh, damage because it had a lot of foreclosures? And we talked at the time about how uh, localities and states differ drastically between themselves and how they handle foreclosures. And the ones that have uh, learned from past recessions, uh, like Texas, uh, even with similar problems of non-performing loans, uh, did not have similar neighborhood problems because they did not have properties lying vacant for six or eight years. Right. Is, am, I'm, am I paraphrasing correctly what you yeah, said? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's a number of factors in terms of what might cause a loss, um, ultimately, and one of them is in Florida, the time to foreclosure is years, whereas in some of the um, other states, Texas and Alabama as two examples, it's weeks. And naturally, if you have a property which is under foreclosure or which is vacant and it sits there for years, it takes, it's a lot more likely to lead some losses. We have some striking figures from the D.C. area in which Maryland has judicial foreclosure and Virginia has more streamlined. And Virginia basically snapped back from the uh, late housing crisis uh, years earlier uh, in part because of that. Uh, <clears throat> does anyone have questions on eminent domain? We need to get Roger into this. Yes, in the corner. Mike Donnelly, Patrick Henry College. I was just curious about how Kilo, I was surprised you didn't talk about Kilo. I guess is that because that's a government taking from one private party giving to another in a sense? Is that, does that intersect with what was going on in MERS? Well, the MERS decision was a regulatory taking decision unlike the um, 
Kelo case, which was a straightforward eminent domain case where the government takes the property itself and then compensates the owner. Uh, the question in, in uh, Kelo was whether they could, they could do that uh, for a private purpose as opposed to for a public purpose. In regulatory takings, the owner keeps the title, but it's a very devalued title in order to provide a public good. Now, the real solution to all of this is to have a unified theory of takings, whereby you don't ask whether it's a regulatory taking or a full-blown eminent domain taking, but you ask simply, how does the regulation affect the property? In one case, it might take the whole property. In another case, it may leave the fee with the owner and reduce its values 50%, 75%, because of the regulation, but in either case, if the taking is for other than the prevention of a nuisance, a risk for one's neighbor, and so on and so forth, if it's to provide the public with a good, then the government has to pay for it. It's no more complicated than that. So it means eminent domain up and down. A regulatory taking is itself an exercise of the power of the government to take um, property, in this case, uses, which is also a form of property. Yes, more questions. Um, yes. Um, after the imminent domain case, uh, uh, Devin Watkins, uh, after the imminent domain case, um, do you think state and local governments might be looking to neighboring lots that may be less valued that they can pay for that lot, merge it into the uh, bigger, more expensive lot, and then eliminate the value of the expensive lot because then they don't have to, they haven't eliminated all the value uh, because they've now merged it with a nearby uh, not so expensive lot? I don't, Devin, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, let me answer it by going to the heart of the matter. Whatever the government does, if it's not, as I said just a moment ago, done in order to protect the rights of other people, but to provide the public with various goods, whatever means it takes toward that end, if it devalues someone's property, then in the court, if, as, as a means for doing that, then it's got to pay for it. Um, and so what we've got today is a world in which the public wants goods on the cheap. And if it can take them from, if the public can take it by imposing all the costs on individual property owners, well, that's the way the current jurisprudence goes, and that's what's wrong with it. More questions? Yes, in the very back. On the eminent domain, John Vecchioni, cause of action. On the eminent domain question, would almost all regulation, for instance, any height um, prohibitions on buildings in a town um, come under, would you have to pay for that? And my question is, is the other side, uh, because all regulation will inflict a cost somehow, even incidentally, um, is it too broad for the court to reach out to because they're afraid of the consequences of that? I mean, having to pay 
Yes, sir. The limiting principle? Uh, I see none. I mean, what, what would the limiting principle be if you're taking someone's property in order to provide a good for the public, just pay the person the cost? Now, what you hear from the environmentalists oftentimes is that, look, we can't afford all the regulations we want. Well, I can't think of a thief who would say anything different. Why did you, why did you take my property? Why did you take my property? Because I couldn't afford to pay for it. But spe specifically on issues like height limitations and how much you can build on your land, you would say um, no limiting principle is appropriate. Then. Right, until you get into the, into the flying zones of... Uh, airplanes at 35,000 feet. There is our connection, you? finally, between the topics, but we've gotten back to the heavens. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes, sir, on the left. Thank you. Carl Golovin, NIdealLivesOn.net. Just a point and a question to clarify the state, uh, separation of church and state issue historically. Um, as a reference, the book Rulers of Evil, Useful Knowledge About Governing Bodies by Frederick Tupper Saucy, an increasingly rare book. At the time of the American Revolution, Roman Catholics were prohibited from voting or holding public office in the British territories. The reason being Roman Catholicism uniquely has both a religious and political dimension, the papacy asserting all temporal authority and dominion over every soul on the planet. And so the question becoming in the current context in taking an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, can someone who's a genuine, sincere Roman Catholic with a superseding obedience to the papacy actually take that oath? Arguably, should, couldn't Roman Catholics, because of the political dimension of Catholicism, need to register as foreign agents of the papacy? Open up the big I've one. Got, I've got my card right here. <laughs> <laughs> Unpack, as Al Smith said. Well, you know, uh, that theme was... Um, colorfully and energetically pursued by Thomas Nast and the Know Nothings um, in the 19th century. And there's some lovely cartoons you can find online that would illustrate that theme of the double agents and so on. I'm, I guess my own view, I, I could be um, off the theological reservation here, is that uh, Catholics don't labor under any view that they are unable to exercise the duties of citizenship um, while at the same time recognizing the higher obligations uh, to God. Thank you. More questions? Uh, Gene Meyer in the front row. Hi, uh, Gene Meyer, Federal Society. I was curious about following up on um, Mr. Heffron's discussion, although I have a feeling one of the others might want to chime in. What would you advise a bank to the extent you could if it wanted to make loans and have relative and be relatively free from any risk of being sued on along these lines because well I, I, I'm, I'm actually looking specifically at uh, at, the, at the type of case you have because it seems to me on the surface any loan you make or any policy you adopt as a bank you could find grounds for suing that are about equally strong depending on either you haven't loaned enough you haven't you, you you you've been too strict you've been too you haven't been strict enough 
et cetera, et cetera. I mean, uh, you know, lawyers are creative. Uh, so I'm curious, does, does that trouble you or do you think that just goes way too far as a concern? Well, I would say, uh, of course, with reference back to my disclaimer, um, I would say that it can be a difficult business for that reason. Um, they're, they're, uh, and it arises not just in making loans, but also, for example, in agreeing to extend a modification or, or foreclosing too quickly, foreclosing too slowly. You know, um, and um, and as as with most um, industries that are highly regulated, uh, there oftentimes are requirements that seeming to be in conflict, whether they be actual written requirements, sometimes they are, and, so, and sometimes it's a written requirement in contrast to a risk, a litigation risk. Um, that's maybe why these institutions are so, have so many large legal departments and hire lawyers on the, on the uh, outside as well. Um, but it can, be, it can be somewhat difficult and it does require a lot of judgment, right? I mean, that's really a lot of what, what um, is going on. And, and I was making this remark actually to Wally before. It's an interesting phenomenon, um, and I'll just make it general, but it relates to your question. It's an interesting phenomenon that banks, which are so large, some of the larger banks, which are so large, or even the regional banks within their areas, but nonetheless can be so subjected to um, political tensions, back and forth, sort of public policy, it's called public policy tensions, going back from Andrew Jackson, of course, and continuing to the present day. And you can see it in what happened to the financial crisis and the TARP and all those things. And so it continues on today and will probably always will be because, of course, banks um, and non-banks um, have a lot and a very important role to play. And, you know, housing is, is of course, something that goes through the economy in so many different ways. So it's difficult. Um, and, you know, the alternative is, of course, doing nothing, um, which doesn't make a lot of money for the institution. So, so they have to find the sweet spot and constantly searching for it. Not unlike a lot of industries, but perhaps, uh, perhaps worse than many. No, not unlike employment also, an area that's notorious yep. for that. Um, more questions? Um, yes, second row. Bob Lawrence, Holman and Lawrence. Uh, question for Professor Garnett. Uh, a hypothetical revolving around the fungibility of funds. If the court were aware that the church elders had met and as they were deciding whether to rubberize the playground or not, they were also discussing buying new hymnals. And they cost about the same. And they decided that they would rubberize the playground but if they could get a grant for that, they would also buy new hymnals using the government's money for the playground. Do you think the court, if it was aware of that meeting, should take that into consideration? I'm inclined to say no. Uh, the, the principle articulated and applied in Trinity Lutheran seems to be that within the context of a program, that program here being the scrap uh, tire reimbursement program, uh, if an entity is otherwise eligible and applies and you know throws its hat in the ring with the other competitors, um, you know the fact that they have some other spending priorities that this might free up doesn't distinguish them from anybody else who might um, be uh, a grantee. Uh, that's, the, the fungibility point is going to be true with respect to anybody, and so I guess I'm inclined to say that no one would focus in on the operation of the program. Uh, is the entity that's applying being excluded simply because of the religious status? If the answer to that is yes, then we have a constitutional problem. 
Of course, if all education were public and the tax money went back to the parents, we wouldn't have these problems, would we? Of course, lawyers would have less work, too. If all education were private, you mean, or...? Uh, if all... Or, if all education were private, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then yeah. you would. Did I say public? I mean, hey, yeah. You said public, but also the. <clears throat> I don't know how the court would handle it, but if school choice programs were handled through vouchers that went to the parent and were not cashed by the religious institution, you might also sidestep the fungibility issues and so forth, uh, as well as. Yeah, my sense is the court hasn't worried too much about uh, you know whether the the voucher check or the tax credit sort of physically enters into the possession of the parent, so long as the operation is through this mediating choice. Okay, uh, we have time for a last question. If anyone has one, otherwise we will take our break now.